0: Being able to speak anonymously is extremely important for people in vulnerable populations, for people with unpopular opinions, for minorities, for women, for anybody whose identity is non-standard. And there are a couple of different reasons for this.
1: This is Lock and Code, a Maurerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, We're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we discussed our joint research with the cybersecurity firm Red Canary into a new malware threat called Silver Sparrow. It is the very first malware that can hit Apple's latest computers. For years, Apple relied on another company, Intel, to develop their computers' internal processing chips. But that arrangement changed at the end of last year when Apple launched the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro, and the Mac Mini with their own new processing chip called the M1. It was a big moment for the company, and already someone has developed malware that includes native code for the M1 chips. In working with Red Canary, we found almost 40,000 unique machines with some components of Silver Sparrow. That's a high number. In 2020, one of the most unusual threats we saw on Mac, called ThiefQuest, amassed about 20,000 detections across an entire year. Silver Sparrow has already racked up more detections by March in just the United States. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. We know how Silver Sparrow installs itself. We know how it moves through a machine. We even know the download URL that Silver Sparrow calls to get its final payload. But what we don't know is what that payload is. The download URL is blank. So for now, there's a bit of a mystery to this bird, and our work continues. But when you think about it, Malwarebytes teams up with Red Canary to track down Silver Sparrow, sure sounds like a headline out of Clark Kent's newspaper. We also checked in on the most recent ransomware development from the operators of the CLOP ransomware. According to ZDNet, CLOP's operators specifically targeted computers that belong to top company executives and managers. The aim is to hit computers that likely have more sensitive information on them. This tactical change is just the most recent development in the multi-year evolution of ransomware in 2020. Ransomware operators increasingly extorted their victims with threats to publish sensitive data that was stolen in an attack. This extortion model actually netted an alleged $100 million for ransomware operators last year. And that was without the actual threat of holding that data hostage through encryption. Also, in 2020, the ransomware Ragnar Locker, added new capabilities to avoid anti-ransomware protection, and another ransomware called RegretLocker increased its ability to quickly encrypt virtual hard disks. As we've learned, whatever ransomware tactic proves effective will be copied by other ransomware operators in the future. So, act now. Bulk up the security of your company's top brass before waiting around for CLOP's success. Also, show some mercy towards your CEO, who, upon admitting she was hit with the dumbest named ransomware ever, could likely die of embarrassment. Finally, we reported that TikTok agreed to pay $92 million to settle dozens of lawsuits in the United States that claimed that the enormously popular short-form video app collected users' personal information without their consent. The settlement reportedly represents one of the largest privacy-related payouts in history. And one of TikTok's lawyers said that the settlement quote, ensures TikTok will respect its users' privacy going forward, end quote. Per the terms of the settlement, TikTok will no longer record a user's biometric information, such as their facial characteristics, and it will no longer track a user's GPS location. The company will also stop sending U.S. user data overseas, and it will no longer collect data from draft videos that users do not publish. Did you know that the pandemic has hit me so hard that I made my first TikTok recipe last week? It's true. For dinner, I made something, some, something, that called for baking an entire block of feta cheese. The entire recipe video was 25 seconds, because that is what my attention span is now. Imagine how hard it is to record this podcast. Our main story today concerns online speech, anonymity, and the consequences of taking those things away. It is a story that we can attempt to understand through another story. On January 30th, New York Times reporter Kashmir Hill published an article about a prolonged campaign of online harassment targeting Guy Babcock and his family. In 2018, after receiving a worrying phone call, Babcock learned that he, his brother, his wife, his sister, his brother-in-law, his teenage nephew, his cousin, and his aunt— had all been targeted by false, inflammatory accusations online. He was called a thief, a fraudster, and a pedophile. His family were sometimes accused of the same. The person behind the accusations, the New York Times found, was most likely a former employee of Babcock's father, who was fired in the early 90s. For more than a decade, the former employee similarly attacked others near her, employees for a bank, Lawyers representing the bank, lawyers representing those lawyers, family members of all those people. Through it all, the former real estate employee slipped by. Often because the websites that she posted this information on sometimes refused to step in and remove her content. And in fact, depending on what anyone posts on major websites today, those types of refusals are entirely within a company's right. The takeaways then from the New York Times story are complex. Because when some of us read these types of stories, we immediately jump to solutions, like limiting what we can say online or requiring that everyone identify themselves to simply engage in online conversations. As we'll learn today, Those so-called solutions can harm others, including government whistleblowers, human rights activists working against oppressive governments, and domestic abuse survivors. On today's episode, we're speaking with Eva Galperin, Director of Cybersecurity at Electronic Frontier Foundation, about online speech, the value of anonymity, and the unintended consequences of changing the way the internet works. Eva, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for being here. So just to get started and to help our audience better understand you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about what you do?
0: Sure. So I work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where I'm the Director of Cybersecurity. I am part of a group we call the Threat Lab, which does sort of security research that is specifically focused on the needs of vulnerable populations. And our goal is to do the security research that other people are not doing. Usually when when information security people are talking about information security, they're talking about the security of governments or the security of corporations. And if they get down to consumer security, it's usually the security of people who can afford to buy their products. So we spend some time thinking about the security and privacy needs of people who are not like that.
1: Thank you. Let's get right into it. I wanted to start with a broader question that focuses on that New York Times story, right? About targeted online harassment through fraudulent posts and, and people's reaction to that story. So shortly after Cashmere Hill's piece went up, people got mad online. What are people mad about?
0: Well, people are rightfully bad that one person can carry out a extensive campaign of harassment online and that it is very difficult to stop them because the targets of the harassment have to get a lawyer, file a lawsuit, or they have to be able to convince local law enforcement to take their harassment seriously enough to take action themselves, which is something that can sometimes be very difficult, mostly because local law enforcement usually doesn't have the training or the understanding to sort of wrap their minds around what has happened. And even when they do, they often don't take it seriously. It's just some things that people are saying online, you know, grow a thicker skin, which is extremely unhelpful.
1: <laughs> and these complaints, right? Like you said, there people are rightfully upset. They're not anything new though, right? This isn't the first time this has happened. So how have we dealt with this upset about the internet in the past? This upset, like you said, where, you know, going through a separate form of recourse, having to rely on law enforcement, the systems simply are not there. And so, so with that, with this upset that we know is there, how have we responded in the past? Has anything changed?
0: Well, different things happen. The first is that the notion that you are allowed to say anything you want online is a highly misleading argument, as is the notion that the First Amendment somehow allows you to say anything that you want online. Most of our speech online now takes place on platforms that are controlled by someone else. And that person's free speech, that company's free speech, is the free speech law that applies on that platform. And so they are entirely within their free speech rights to edit or ban or leave up almost whatever they want. Uh, And your own rights as a user are largely limited. The terms of service can often give you some idea of what to expect, but Again, they are not particularly bound by these promises, and they change all the time, which is very confusing. And to make things even more confusing, almost nobody reads the terms of service. They're very long documents written in legalese designed to bore you to death so that you never find out what's in them.
1: Right, right. It's something that we at Mauerbytes actually consistently talk about on our blog, that trying to parse these documents requires a level of education and a time commitment that no one has. You know, the average user just doesn't have. And it feels like it's, you know, just one of the many obstacles to fully understanding and receiving and engaging in a, in a transparent internet. But I wanted to move back here, you know, that whenever we reach a sort of flashpoint in this conversation about things that are bad online, we get a flood of ideas about how to, you know, quote unquote, fix the problem. And because Twitter is is like where we live now. I at least see those ideas more and more on that platform. And I, I have seen these these two big ideas that I'm going to mention on Twitter in the past couple of weeks because of the New York Times story. So let's focus on on two of those ideas that often get repeated here, right? One is changing the law. And another one is requiring real names and real identities for all online spaces and platforms. Let's focus on that second one right now, will real identities make the internet a safer place?
0: No. Well, the short answer is no. The long (laughs) answer is hell no. Um, (laughs) And it's not as if this thought has not been thought before and this experiment has not played out before. The argument over uh, the use of real names online goes back decades. I wrote a, a bunch of things about it, probably a maybe 10 years ago, and I was definitely not the first person writing about the real names problem. But the the premise is that if people used their real names, that they would not post this kind of harassing content. That if your name was next to every opinion that you had, that you would be more uh, careful about the things that you say online. And this is both true and untrue. On one hand, People say harassing things with their real names next to them all the time. The people who took part in the Capitol building insurrection on January 6th were proud of what they were doing. They were often posting using their real names to parlor while bragging about breaking the law. I think that this assumes a level of shame that is simply not there. Cyberbullying is named for bullying, a form of abuse that usually takes place in person. You're not standing around wondering who your bully is. People are willing to be tremendous jerks online. And the more powerful that they are offline, the more likely it is that they will act as bullies online and that they will put their names next to it and feel no shame whatsoever. The flip side of that is that anonymous speech is an extremely important tool for allowing people to speak truth to power. If everybody wants to think back to their history class, when you're taught about the Revolutionary War, in the time leading up to the war, the pamphlets that were being written by the founding fathers, making the argument for why the United States should break away from the British, these were all printed anonymously. They were using pseudonyms, and that was really important because they needed to maintain a certain level of anonymity in order to physically protect themselves because they were speaking out against the king. And Even now, we're not just limiting this to insurrection against the government. Being able to speak anonymously is extremely important for people in vulnerable populations, for people with unpopular opinions, for minorities, for women, for anybody whose identity is non-standard. And there are a couple of different reasons for this. The first is that we don't have sort of one single incorporated identity. We are often different people to our coworkers or our schoolmates or our friends or the people at our church, temple, mosque, coven. And that's fine. Jumbling all of those identities together can result in really negative consequences. And making it impossible for people to explore different aspects of their identity is potentially very harmful. And finally, anonymous speech allows people to speak truth to power. If you can speak anonymously, you can do more daring reporting. You can do more dangerous exposés. You can blow the whistle on bad corporate, on corporate malfeasance. So there, there are all kinds of reasons why preserving anonymity online and even pseudonymity, where you're just using the same pseudonym over and over again, but it is not your real name. So people can even look at the other things that you have done and judge whether or not the stuff that you're saying is reliable is really important
1: yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to touch a little bit on, you know, something simple, like like whistleblowing. even in my past life, I was a legal affairs reporter, and I did cover a whistleblower trial, just an employee who believed that his company was doing something ill with their finances, and he was fired after reporting that activity. He went to trial. He spent, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars for legal representation. He did win. He did win his jury trial he had the money to do that. Like He had the money to go to trial. He had the money to live without a job for a few months, for probably more than a year. And that was a prolonged fight for doing something that was within his right, for doing something that we have laws on. We do have whistleblower protections. And it just goes to show that these things are important. These things need protection. I did want to circle back a little bit to, before we talk a little bit more about anonymous speech, About, again, this real name proposal, like you said, this has been around for decades. You wrote about it, you know, about 10 years ago. And like you said, you were not the first. There are many people exploring this issue. Why does this so-called solution keep bubbling up, though? Why do we keep hearing about it if there is no proof so far that it works?
0: Because it has truthiness. It feels right. If only you could look your accusers in the eye, if only you you knew who your accusers were so that you could threaten them with legal action, surely they would sink back into the shadows and never be heard from again. It's a very satisfying argument if you imagine that uh, anonymous speech is going to result in people saying a lot of bad things anonymously about you specifically people are more likely to put themselves into the shoes of the person with power being attacked than the person who is powerless, who has only speech on their side. In much the same way that when you hear arguments about sexual assault, you will hear people who have No difficulty sympathizing with the notion of a person who has not committed sexual assault who is being falsely accused, a thing which happens a very, very small percentage of the time, and people have more difficulty putting themselves in the shoes of a person who has been sexually assaulted, a thing which has happened to approximately one-third of all women and we're not even sure how many men because men are less likely to report
1: I think that's a really good moment to pivot into this. Like you said, talking about sexual assault, there's a lot of importance here, you know, of anonymous speech with survivors of domestic abuse. And so I wanted to I wanted to ask you, can you talk about your work with the domestic abuse survivors? Because you have been supporting this community for quite some time now. I don't actually know how how far uh, how far it goes back, but I know that your public work began a couple of years ago when you kind of graciously opened yourself up to on Twitter saying, hey, I, I can help you with some of these things. Please reach out to me, survivors. But I wanted to get it from you. Can you talk more about that work? How do survivors reach you? What is it they're telling you? What do they need? And, and how, like you said, does online anonymous speech sometimes really help these folks?
0: I've been doing work with survivors since approximately 2016, 2017. And my sort of public work really began at the beginning of 2018. And a lot of that work came out of traveling all over the world and uh, helping to train journalists and activists to protect themselves against government surveillance. And it turned out that there were people in the human rights community who were... Abusive in all kinds of extremely complicated ways, and people were afraid to speak out about them. And so, in one particularly famous case, a number of survivors posted their stories to a website under pseudonyms, and it was the way that they they really brought attention to a to a longtime abuser. So it was really central to this whole idea. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why, you know, sort of speech is often the only outlet that survivors have is that Often sexual abuse or even physical abuse is difficult to prove. Often the accusations are coming a very long time after the abuse because the nature of abuse is such that it actually takes or can take a very long time for survivors to even admit that something bad has happened to them and they're still trying to wrap their heads around it. They're trying to get enough distance from the abuse that they're not in danger of being abused some more by the perpetrator. Uh, so there are, there are all kinds of reasons why it's very difficult. And furthermore, getting sort of legal action or even you know, action by, you know, by the police, law enforcement action on sexual abuse is incredibly difficult. Almost no one that I know who has gone to the police with stories about sexual assault has anything good to say about it. It is much more likely that survivors will be belittled that they will essentially be put on trial again. And it is extremely unlikely that this will result in consequences for the abuser that are in any way proportional to what they have done. And that's really alarming. So often all that the survivors can do is tell their stories. As to say that, hey, this happened to me. And if you encounter this person you should know that this is how they behave towards me and make your decisions about how you treat them with that in mind.
1: Yeah. If we remove anonymity online, if we remove that power, what, what won't domestic abuse survivors be able to do? You know, what's, what's going to be removed? How won't they be able to engage and continue on with their lives?
0: Well, not only will they not be able to tell their stories, but they will also not be able to continue hiding from their abusers. Often after you know a survivor gets away, one of their main concerns is how they're going to carry on their lives online without continuing to be harassed or stalked by their abuser. And often this means adopting a pseudonym on social media, if you want to continue to have any kind of social media access, because the alternative is essentially that you go live on top of a mountain in a shack with no internet access. Mm -hmm. And the notion that a survivor should have to bear the burden of no longer having a public life, whereas the perpetrator gets to go forward unscathed, strikes me as profoundly unfair. And this is one more way in which survivors are uh, are punished for surviving and perpetrators are essentially let off the hook. So they will not be able to tell their stories and they won't continue to be physically safe from their abusers.
1: You're absolutely right. So much of of the steps after leaving an abusive household, like you said, are starting over. And when we say starting over, it's, it's it's real. It's it's deep. It's every kind of part of a person. And sometimes, like you said, that's starting new social media accounts. A lot of the situations I've heard is getting an entirely new phone, getting a phone that isn't, you know, the old phone number. That That is a way to be identified. That is a way that some platforms, away from two-factor authentication, which is its own thing, right? But away from that, which is a security measure, some platforms identify folks through their phone numbers. Um, Sometimes that's a required thing to engage in a platform. Sometimes you have to start over. And so, you know, having a pseudonym, having anonymous speech, hiding, physically hiding, those are extremely important things. Those are vital things to these communities. That's all about anonymity, right? And a lot of this conversation has focused on online anonymity. But a big piece of this issue, I think, also always comes back to a law that has been cited probably... 100 billion times in the past year, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. What is that law? How does it intersect here?
0: Well, to begin with, CDA 230 is a fairly obscure and wonkish law, which up until a few years ago, only people like you and I had heard of. The notion that CDA 230 is being debated by sort of ordinary people in the public square, continues to be baffling to me. This is on par with ordinary people being able to, you know, discuss the differences between Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. (laughs) A thing which I also would not have been able to imagine 10 years ago.
1: Right. And those are just for audiences. Those are two separate Russian hacking groups. Uh, Is that what they are? Mm hmm. I don't know the difference between the two. I know their names. That's <laughs> that's
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the world we live in now. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the Communications Decency Act. So I think this this goes back to the '90s. Uh, so before my time, dinosaurs were roaming the earth, <laughs> including <laughs> several of my coworkers at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And see, the Communications Decency Act had a whole bunch of other stuff in it. It was not just CDA 230, but it really limited a lot of what people could say online and was otherwise found to be unconstitutional. So I think Mm -hmm. every part of the Communications Decency Act, aside from 230, is no longer law. It turned out to be unconstitutional. But this one sort of remainder, this appendix of the Communications Decency Act was a little bit of good. And what 230 did was uh, it said that if you are a platform that allows other people to post content online, so if you are Facebook, if you are running an online newspaper and you have a comment section, uh, if you are the administrator of a forum, all of which were, were quite common at the time, Facebook did not exist, and somebody posts something which is defamatory, or which is, you know, sketchy in in some other way, that you are not obliged to take that down right away, that you can, you may take it down at at your leisure, or not take it down at all, because you will not be sued for what a third party posts to your website. The Exception to this, and this is the thing that I spent many of my early years fighting, was intellectual property. So if somebody posts the entirety of an Avengers movie to your to your comments section, you are actually obliged under the DMCA to take that down when you receive a notice telling you that, you know, hey, this is a violation of the studio's copyright. So this was a great protection for free speech and a lousy protection for, or no protection at all for copyright law because copyright law is controlled by the mouse and arguing with Disney is very, very hard because they have a lot of money. And this law is what enabled social media companies to thrive in the United States. I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley in the early 2000s, right around the time that social media was starting up. And when I would travel to other places, they would say, why don't we have a Silicon Valley? Why don't we have this whole kind of world of online platforms? And often it is because they did not have protections for people who are hosting other people's speech. And so people did not want to host other people's speech for fear that they that they would be jailed the moment that somebody said something unpopular or, you know, against the government or otherwise sketchy. Mm -hmm. So CDA 230 is really the cornerstone of this media environment that we have now. And one of the reasons why CDA 230 is often pointed out as problematic, why people come up and say, like, if we only got rid of CDA 230, that somehow it would rein in the power of big tech and the power of big social media companies is because this law was so important for them when they were coming up. Having said that, it is not a special law just for social media companies. These protections are essential to everyone and they're essential to anyone else who wants to build a platform. And certainly they are essential to anybody who wants to build a competitor to Facebook or Twitter or any of the other big platforms. And that is one of the reasons why getting rid of it is actually not going to help. Furthermore, a lot of the issues that people have with CDA 230 are not really issues with CDA 230. They are issues with the First Amendment in the sense that when you speak online and you speak on on somebody else's platform, your free speech rights are not the free speech rights that apply. It is the platform's free speech rights that apply. And they can say anything they want and they can take down anything that they want. I mean, they can say anything they want as long as it's not copyrighted. Because again, the great exception to all speech online is angering the mouse. So their free speech rights are the rights that apply. And so even if you got rid of CDA 230, these companies could still apply any kind of rules they want to what you can say on their platform. And they can lock you out or they can take things down and they can be inconsistent. They can change their minds. And it is their prerogative because of the First Amendment. And so a lot of the people who say we should get rid of CDA 230 are really saying, hey, I don't like the First Amendment and we should alter it in various ways. And if they want to have that argument, I'm down. But often they disingenuously pretend that CDA 230 is somehow the problem.
1: Right, right. And a lot of the proposals I see as well are proposals to make particularly big tech, you know, big social media companies liable, liable for the things that their users post, for the things that you and I post. And if they become liable, there's a rabbit hole of possibilities to go down. But one of the projected possibilities there is that they become extremely cautious and then everything gets hyper-moderated in a sense. You know, you put a tweet and it's like, okay, it's going to take a week for our team to like review whether or not it's, whether we'll get in trouble for it. And and that changes kind of the the way everything works online. I wanted to ask after that long explainer on on CDA 230 on on its importance, the proposals to change it. What does that do? How does that intersect with the freedom for domestic abuse survivors to tell their stories online and for those stories to be also read and shared, I think is, is particularly important.
0: Let's play a game. So we live in a world in which there is no CDA 230. And a Person who has been the victim of abuse wants to come out and tell their story. Short of spinning up their own web server and running their own website without any web hosting, chances are that what they're going to want to do is to publish their story on somebody else's platform. So on Facebook, on Twitter on Medium or Substack or Parler or, you know, in dance form on TikTok. There are many different ways in which you can go off and express yourself and tell your story. And again, this is often the only option that survivors have for anything even vaguely resembling justice. So the survivor tells their story. They post it to a platform controlled by someone else. And then in a situation in which CDA 230 does not exist, the platform goes, wait a minute. This is some incendiary content. This person is making some very serious accusations against the alleged uh, perpetrator. And now we can be sued. We can be sued for defamation we don't want to be sued for defamation. Take that down right now or don't allow it to be posted in the first place. And suddenly that person whose only recourse was telling their story is completely silenced.
1: Right, right. As we see from, right from like these proposals, the solution leads to silencing. That's what it is. Someone doesn't have a chance to tell their story. Someone doesn't have a chance to be heard. Speaking truth to power is gone. And we've talked a lot on this episode already about how some of these, again, these quote-unquote solutions make things worse. And that's just a kind of a fact of internet policy. A lot of proposed ideas make things worse. When you start to actually work through those ideas and, and how they impact certain communities, how they impact certain vulnerable populations, again, they make things worse. And so I actually wanted to wrap up with a different kind of question and Try to understand what what makes things better. And so uh, finally here, in your mind, what would actually make the internet a safer space? And, you know, let's focus on survivors of domestic abuse. What makes the internet a safer place to tell those stories? What makes the internet a safer place, you know, moving into the future?
0: Well, there are a couple of things, but primarily the onus for making safe platforms is on makers of the platforms and the onus for safer tools and safer internet of things objects is also on their makers. And so if there are people who are listening to this, uh, to this podcast, who are developing software or who are developing platforms or services for commercial use, I encourage them to think about how their tool will be used for harassment to think about how this tool will be used by a domestic abuser, to think about empowering the user to get away from somebody that they used to trust, who also used to use this tool with them. And there are a couple of different things that people can do. One of the the most important things is if you have a a way of sending messages through your platform, please make it possible for, uh, for people not to use their real names. Ideally, make it possible so that they do not have to hand over their phone number. Make it possible for them to block other users or to mute certain keywords. If you give the power to the users, then they can decide what is harassment and what is abuse. And it really takes the onus off of the maker of the platform to be judge, jury, and executioner for every communication that somebody has online.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it, too, in terms of the developers right? The makers of the technology around us and us, we have a responsibility. We have to think about the way people can engage with these tools. Um, We have to think about folks who we don't often think about. And that's that's probably the best way to sum it up, right? Do more, think more. (laughs) Think more and then do more based on that, hopefully, good thinking. That's a strong message. I, I hope folks take it to heart. I understand it's a lot of work, but I also want to emphasize that there also uh, there are also organizations and communities out there who are doing this thinking and are willing to help. We at Mowerbytes we detect stalkerware type applications, and we didn't do it alone. Right? We we leaned a lot on the advice of folks like at EFF, at National Network to End Domestic Violence, at stalking centers. There are people out there. There are experts out there who are who are willing to help. So, please just do that, everyone. <laughs> With that. Eva, I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we listen to a special presentation about the Malwarebytes 2021 State of Malware Report, in which we'll discuss how cybercrime evolved last year with fewer attacks but far bigger demands. Until then... You can read all of our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you hear today, subscribe and review our show. Reviews are the best way to signal to new listeners whether our show is any good, bumping up our reputation and our credibility. Thanks again.